0: If you have a Bible, whether on your phone or on your iPad, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4 and starting in verse 7. I had a series of sermons that I've prepared like before I even started here and I was going to do mission which I did last week and then I want to do vision and then I want to do values but before I do vision and values I need to talk to the leadership team we got a meeting tomorrow night and so I was like okay I need to I need to fill a Sunday with just a standalone sermon and you know if you're preaching on Valentine's Day what do you preach on to fill in for a sermon you preach on love And so we want to talk about love this morning. First John chapter four, verse seven. I wanna look at verses seven through 21. Let me read part of this passage for you. And as I do, if you're able, please stand with me in the reading of God's word. If you can't, that's cool. But stand up and let me read at least a part of this passage for you and listen carefully. First John chapter four, starting verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. All right, we'll stop there. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word you may be seated this morning. Now, this is an interesting passage. And for the longest time when I read this passage and other passages like it in 1 John, I always thought John was trying to tell us how to love. Like it was kind of like a a how-to passage. And the more I read it, the more I realize that it's really not a how-to passage. It's more of a why you ought to love. He says, let us love one another. And he keeps saying in the passage, we ought to love one another. And so, John, the apostle of love, I mean, just the sweetest pastoral guy in the world, he's really calling the church to be a loving group of people, and he's trying to motivate people to be loving. And I always thought, well, yeah, it was kind of like a, I mean, you know, why is he talking about why we should love? It's kind of obvious, isn't it? Like, of course we should love. We're Christians, right? You come to church, and, and you hear a sermon on why you should love. It's like it's so obvious And yet the more I live my life and the more I experience our culture, it's not as obvious as it used to be to me. Because even though we know we should love, we struggle to love and to be loving people. It's not obvious and it's not easy to be consistently a loving person in our marriages, in our family, and certainly not in society. Culture... (laughs) Culture and society has created a, a, a people that are perpetually in a bad mood. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Everybody today is filled with bitterness and divisiveness. In fact, it's kind of trendy not to be a loving person. It's trendy to be divisive and unloving. And I would be lying if that didn't impact me because it does impact me. I'm tempted by this spirit of division and who believes what and who's, who, what group does one person belong to. And, and we live in a society that has politicized everything. I think it was George Orwell who said that, you know you're living in a soft totalitarian society when everything is politicized. And everything is politicized. Sports is politicized, which is a bummer everybody say bummer that's a bummer because I'm really not interested in political messages when I'm watching sports how about you right and so even when we watch sports we're tempted to start thinking about like my side and my team and we're not talking about sports teams you know we we live in a society when masks are politicized or any little thing is politicized and the problem is is that I have a sinful nature I know you want a perfect pastor, but I want you to know something. I am not perfect. And that that spirit of division, it comes in like a fog into our homes, and the next thing you know, it begins to affect the relationships that should be easy in terms of love. And it begins to invade our churches, and it should be easy that we love one another. But it's not, because we're already coming in filled with resentment, We're filled with bitterness. We're bothered by everything. The Bible says that men love the darkness rather than the light. It is easy to walk in hatred and bitterness. It takes a a massive intentional effort to be a loving person, even with the people that we love. You know you're getting in trouble when you stop loving the people that you should love. When you stop liking your kids and your wife and your husband and your pastor and church members and family members. And you stop liking the people you know you should like. So we come to this text and we go, man, we do need help. Like, please, word of God, tell me why I should be a loving person. Motivate me and fill me again with the capacity to love. And that's what makes this passage so great. John, this sweet pastor, the apostle of love, he instructs his church and these members and these congregations he's writing to, he instructs them, this is why you ought to be a loving person that you should be willing to make sacrifices for others, that you should exist for other people more than you exist for yourself. He gives us a few reasons. Let's walk through it with the rest of the time we have here. First of all, why should we and why ought we to love one another? The first reason why is because God is love. God is love. Look at it in verse seven. In 8, he says, beloved, I love that, beloved, that means loved ones, let us love one another for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's a little confusing. These are really difficult verses to kind of unpack because he gets a little confusing because he's saying that everyone who loves knows God and has been born of God. Now we're tempted to to say, oh, okay, so the way that you are born of God and the way that you know God is by loving other people, but that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that everyone who loves other people knows God because we all know people... Who don't know God but they know how to love it's not like you got to know Jesus to know how to love there are plenty of pagans and unbelievers in this world who know how to love their kids and their family and their friends in fact he goes on to say well let's look at it we got enough time if you skip down to verses 12 and 13 look at what he says there he says no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Again, you you got you to interpret those verses because either he's saying, well, the way that you're saved and you become a Christian is you love other people, and God looks at you and says, okay, because you love other people, I'm going to love you. Or, he's saying, because God has given you his spirit and he's perfected his love in you through Christ, you become a loving person. How does a person become a Christian? Not by works, but by faith alone, through grace alone. So when we take that and we take all that information and we bring it back up to verses 7 and 8, what's he saying? He's saying, it is true. It is true that there are people who know how to love who don't know God, but it is not true that you can say that you know God, but you're not a loving person. That's the impossibility. It's impossible for somebody to say, oh, you know, I know God. I know God. And then not love other people. That's impossible. He's saying when you've been born of God and you know God, then you have a rich capacity in the Holy Spirit to be a loving person. That's why he says at the end of the passage, he says, those who hate their brothers, but then say they know God, they're a liar, John says. Because it's impossible that you can know God who is love and then not be a loving person. God is the the essence of love. God is love. God is love. What does it mean to love? It means to be sacrificial. It means to be radically generous. It means to lose your wealth so that other people can be rich. It It means to put somebody else ahead of yourself. That's what God is, God is in His very nature generous and overflowing in love. God is love and when we've been born of God and we've experienced His love for us even when we were least deserving and least promising and we know that we've been forgiven then we naturally out of knowing God and being born of God we increase in our ability to love one another. John is reminding his congregation, don't forget that the God who saved you, that the God who's caused you to be born again, that the the God who's given you new life and made you a new creation, don't forget that he did that out of love. And he wants you to redo that in this world. So why should we? Why ought we to be loving? Because God is love. And I would If you're taking notes online or here, you could put, like, the author of love is God. The author of love is God. God is love. But the second reason he gives is the picture of love. He says that God sent his son. Why ought we to be loving people? Because God sent his son. Look at verses 9 and following. He says, in this... The love of God was made manifest among us. How did God manifest his love? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. God is the author of love, and as the author of love, he's created a great picture. And the greatest picture and the greatest manifestation of his loving heart is that he sent his one and only son, and then he uses a fancy word. He says, to be the propitiation for our sins. And of course we say, why do these translations give these big fancy words? And I just like those translations where it's like, like really easy to read and I don't like those big biblical words, propitiation. I can't even say propitiation. Try to say propitiation three times. Propitiation, 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 I'm a pastor, right, amen. But here's the reason why it's good it keeps that word in there and that word is super important. It's because it's a very visual word because propitiation is a word that belongs in the temple. And what happened in the temple? What happened in the temple is that animals were slaughtered, and blood was splattered in those temples. And they would take that blood, and they would bring it into the Holy of Holies, and put it on the mercy seat, and make propitiation, or satisfy, or appease the wrath of God and what john is doing is he's he's not just wanting us to know intellectually he wants us to feel the picture that the that jesus is the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world and that that the picture is the splinters of the cross and the and the and the spilled blood of jesus dripping off of that cross as he's dying in our place for our sins That not only helps us to graphically understand what love is, that helps us to define what love is because love is sacrifice. Love is substitution. What is the gospel? In four words, the gospel is Jesus in my place. What is the gospel? It's in two words, substitutionary atonement. And it wasn't like Jesus went up on a cross and like out of the blue, like in history, stepped in and everybody's like, why is he dying on a cross and there's blood and he's got no clothes on and he's striped? It's not like that kind of came out of the blue. That was prophesied because Isaiah and Isaiah 53 said that the servant and the Messiah would come and by his stripes we would be healed. This is our picture. This is our picture. He wants us to feel it. He wants us to to be absorbed by it. He wants us to be animated by it. He wants us to be defined by it. He wants us to understand that, that our identity in Christ is rooted in God's sacrifice for us. And that the reason why I know God is that even though I'm the least deserving and the least promising, he sent his son to die for me. And that is no joke, man. That's like a whole worldview. That's like a whole way to live the rest of your life. Because what John is saying is that once you understand that, then your job is to redo that in the world. And to love people. And to say, I will absorb people's offenses and not treat them as if they've offended me. I look back in my past and I can see people that hurt me with their words or they define me with their abuse or whatever it is. And I will never be the same because of those things. I'll never be the same. But what is forgiveness? It's saying I will no longer hold it against them. I will absorb the impact of that abuse and I will decide not to be a victim but to move on because I know what love is. It's sacrifice. Love is not some sweet thing, some easy little sweet, you know. I mean, God bless your Hallmark movies. Go home and watch them. I have women. I know. It's like Jane Austen. Okay. British accents. Whatever. Okay. We'll watch it today. Happy Valentine's Day. But love is brutal, man. Love is a brutal thing. It's tough as nails. God absorbed in his human body my sin. And then he says, go and love. Go and love. That's why if you go to first, I got a slide for this, actually, I think. First Corinthians chapter 13, verses four and following. This is Jesus. This is Jesus on the cross. Love is patient. You know what patience is? Patience is refusing to dish out justice when I have every right. We live in the most impatient society ever. A society that demands justice on the spot with no patience and no mercy. That's a pagan world that's going to crumble underneath your feet because there's no patience in anybody anymore. you got to counsel everybody and divide everybody and families can never reconcile and husbands and wives never get back together. And there's no patience because we stand there and go, well, I've got rights. I was treated unfairly. This chaos that's happened in my life, I'm just going to dish it right back out because I've got every right to. This is not some, these are not words that belong in some cute frame in our home and we just kind of sit around with sentimental good feelings. Patience is gritty, man. It's Jesus on the cross. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It doesn't look at other people and say, you know, Well, they shouldn't have that. I should have that. Why do they get the nice house? I work just as hard as they. There should be an equality of outcome. Love does not envy you. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. Or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. I love that one too because love, love rejoices in what's right. Can I get an amen? Love is not some kind of like, oh, you know, well, because we're loving, we're not going to demand that people do what's right. We're going to go ahead and and enable dysfunctional behavior because we want to be a loving person. Being a loving person is not being passive aggressive. It's not treating people with the silent treatment. Being loving is not refusing to engage in good conflict resolution and difficult conversations. Love demands that we walk in the truth and that we Have a conversation. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. It endures all things. I like that, endures all things. That means it sticks a stake in the ground is what the Greek means. My love is right here for you, for the rest of our future together. That's why God has us get married, right? Because, you know, what gets us to the altar? I mean, Sherry, baby, and I, we met, and I was like, baby, I'm getting you to the altar before you can say no. I got you now. And love gets you to that altar, but let me tell you something covenant keeps you in the marriage. Covenant keeps you in the marriage. And, you know, I always tell young couples, they come to me for pre-marriage counseling and I'll marry them. I love marriages and doing weddings. It's one of my favorite things to do. But I always tell that young couple, I always say, and I tell older couples too, can I get a hallelujah? I tell the older ones too, they'll come to me and want to get married. I'll be like, listen, here's the deal. When you marry somebody, you are marrying an incomplete product. And then in the ceremony, I got everybody out there, and everybody's looking pretty, and you got the BFF, and you got the friends, and you got the dresses, and the ice sculptures, and some guy is trying to hide the whiskey flask from me. And I always say at that ceremony, I say, let me tell everybody here, the two people that are standing in the sight of God are both sinners in need of grace. And I remember, I remember one time Sherry Baby and I, we were... Somebody asked us, like, hey, guys, what's the secret to your really good marriage? And I thought Sherry baby, was going to say, you know, how good looking I was or how great, you know, and charming and masculine, but teachable and sensitive. I thought that's what she'd say. And so I was waiting for her great answer. And she goes, oh, I'll tell you what the secret is. Forgiveness is the secret to a good marriage. I was like, dang, what do you forgive me for? You know, like. That's relationships. It's forgiveness. And a lot of it. And if you don't, if you don't forgive, resentment builds up. You start rolling your eyes at one another. And then you're in trouble because you forgot. That God didn't put one righteous person and one sinner together. God put two sinners. There's two problems in every marriage, a husband and a wife, and Jesus is the glue. And then you get little kids, and they're all cute. And guess what about your little kids? Sinners. (laughs) So then we got big problems. And then we got big problems. Because what happens then is then you got two sinners trying to raise little sinners and you're like, if you don't go to church and get some Jesus, you're in trouble. Can I get an amen? amen. This is love. And that's why John's child's like, you ought to love one another. And we go, I don't know. And he says, propitiation. And we see the dripping blood of Jesus. We see how God treats us, how he's patient with us, how he loves us, how he guarantees our future no matter what in the covenant of grace. And then he calls church members and... and citizens and husbands and wives and grandparents and kids with their parents to be forgiving, loving people. Why do we love? Because God is love and because God sent his son. That's the picture. Finally today, not only do we love, why do we love? Because God is love. Because God sent his son but the final reason why we love is because there is no fear in love. Look at verses 16 and following. 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 and following. He says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence. You could underline confidence. Confidence for the day of judgment. You could underline judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has something, love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, what I want to emphasize is those two words. He brings them up. He says that there's no fear in love, right? He says we have confidence, verse 17, for the day of judgment. And then he says in verse 18, perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you got nothing to fear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been delivered and plucked out of the fires of hell because of Jesus. You stood ready to be condemned before a holy God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says that Jesus saves us from the wrath of God to come. You have been plucked from the fires of hell. You have been delivered from the wrath of God. And you have confidence and no fear in the presence of God. Now tell me, why is it that people don't love other people? Because they're afraid. And you want to know what they're afraid of? Being judged. They're afraid of being judged. They're afraid that the world will tell them that they are not worthy. And you know what? Especially, I don't know about women, because I'm still trying to figure them out, but I know about men. We men want to feel worthy and respected. And we got this tough exterior, but on the, underneath that tough exterior is a very sensitive ego. And we are afraid somebody's going to tell us that we are not worthy. And here's what culture is telling our kids. Parents, listen up. This is exactly what culture is telling your kids. That they can shape their own identity, and that their identity is not complete until they are acknowledged by people around them. So if they feel like that they are a certain way, They can't complete their identity until somebody else acknowledges that in them. And that's why they get mad when they don't get acknowledged for the identity that they want in their life. What is that? That's a fear of judgment. The world says that there's pieces of you out there. And the response and in the acknowledgement of other people, and you got to go get those pieces of yourself from how people treat you. And you got to build your identity off of people's responses to you. This is saying not that there's pieces of you out there in the culture. This is saying that you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, that you're secure. And what happens when somebody gets secure and they're no longer afraid of being judged? They can love. They can even pray for their enemies. They can love their enemies. They can say, man, I wish he wouldn't have done that to me, but I'm okay because there's no fear in me anymore. I'm accepted by the king of the world. I am secure in my identity in Christ, and therefore, I don't have to go out there in culture. My life does not come down to what you say about me. My life comes down to what God says over me. I am a child of God and therefore the world does not exist to tell me about God or my identity. The world exists for me to go out and serve and live for others. And to say to people, I will serve you. I will love you. I will will lay down my life for you because God laid down his life for me. That's why John is saying, that's why sweet Pastor John is getting so rough there at the end. He goes, "Don't, don't be saying that you hate your brother and you know God. You're a liar because you've forgotten that God has delivered you from judgment, from his own wrath, and there's no fear in his love. And if there's no fear in his love, then you have every confidence to be able to love people. And that's what, I mean, this is the secret. You know, when you're, when you're a dad, you give up wealth so that you can raise up and have children. When you're a husband, you, you give up your own needs so that you can love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And wives, you can, because there's no judgment for you, you can grant leadership to your husband and respect and honor him. And say you are the spirit, I voluntarily give you spiritual leadership in my home. Oh, but the world will look at you ladies and say, how dare you? You're not liberated. You're not, you're not liberated. It's like liberation doesn't come in determining how you're liberated. Liberation comes in knowing that you are loved by God. Therefore, you can serve people in this world and give your life for the other. Why do we love? We love because God is love. We love because God sent his son. And we love because there's no fear in love. Sounds pretty good sermon on love. Pretty good. Second sermon of his pastoral leadership. Not bad. Not bad. Valentine's Day. Amen. Amen. But we got to land this plane. So what are we going to do? How are we going to take this home? You know, here's what I'd like to say to you, just in closing, as just something you can kind of take and apply to your life this week. Abide in the love that God has for you, and then act out the love that God has for you. I think it was John Piper who said that the love of God is like a mighty stream. It's like a mighty river. And loving other people is not going to that river and filling up buckets and then taking those buckets to other people. It's more like you go to that river and you satisfy your thirst in the love of God and you have strength because you've drank deeply from the stream and then you go out in the strength that the stream of God's love gives to you and you love people the way God has loved you redo in this world what Jesus has done in your life and in that way you will be able to love one another let's pray father we give you praise and thanks for your love it's a tough love But it is good and powerful and life changing. And we're so grateful for your word that not only tells us how to love, but tells us why we should love. And God, we're tempted by bitterness on all sides, we're tempted by hate and division. But may your love ground us again. And none of us are perfect in this, we're all broken in this area. And there are times when we hate our brother. And there are times when we're bitter towards those we shouldn't be. And so we need your help. Holy Spirit, we need you to come and fill us up. I need you to help me, God. And Father, if there's somebody here who doesn't know you, who has not been born of you and your love, help them to open up the eyes of their heart and to believe in Jesus, that he died for them and defeated death. Lord, help them to have faith in Christ for their salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.